Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon, dot U-S, to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Today we interview Nigella Lawson. You know, Nigella once told me that she doesn't believe in guilty pleasures, but she does love the sublime art of eating chocolate in bed. Deciding, do I really crunch down with my teeth on this square, you know, like a dog? 
Or do I let it, this one I think I'm going to let melt very slowly, always hard, but then more gratifying. Also coming up, we make a simple shrimp and polenta dish inspired by Venetian cucina povera. And Dan Pashman explains why he likes ordering dinner through the mail. But first, it's my interview with pitmaster Rodney Scott. He started cooking whole hog at his family's barbecue joint when he was just 11. He now runs Rodney Scott's Whole Hog Barbecue in Charleston, South Carolina. Rodney, welcome to Milk Street. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure having you. Uh, You talk about there's a right way to cook a hog, but there's also a wrong way to cook a hog, right? And I'm sure you've done both. So what's the wrong way? That is, what can go wrong over 12 hours of cooking a whole hog? Well, one of the first things that can go wrong over 12 hours of cooking a hog is you can not get your temperature up high enough to uh, get past that danger zone in the first four hours. And you can also fire it too fast and lose it. And that's not good either. You don't want to burn the entire thing up. (laughs) You once mentioned that a pig can actually catch fire when you're cooking it, right? Yes, pigs can definitely catch fire. Which, of course, is not a good thing at all. So how does this work? So you have to get the wood going uh, so it's turned into charcoal separately, and then you shovel that under the pig. I mean, is that the basic method? For us, we we, ha- we have this thing called a burn barrel, which is like two 55-gallon drums stacked together. And uh, in the bottom, there's a grate, and we put the wood inside, whole pieces of wood, and we, we burn them down into hot coals. And once those hot coals fall to the bottom of this wood barrel, we'll go ahead and uh, scoop those hot coals up and scatter them under the shoulders and the hams of the hog. And that process goes on, you know, every 10 to 15 minutes for about 12 hours. So how far above the coals uh, is the hog? The hogs are about two and a half, three feet above the coals, just enough to get that nice drip and simmer and steam right back up into the, the meat. Oh, man, it's, ooh, it's something you got to see. <laughs> so I read somewhere that when the pork is fully cooked, uh, is this like 185 to 190? Or is this like over 200 degrees? Um, you know, I use a thermometer, but I'm sure you don't. So how do you determine you know, the, when the pork is really cooked? For me, that pork needs to sit at least at 190 to uh, 200. 200 is really good. If you don't use a thermometer like I do, you can just grab that bone where the feet were cut off. And you, if that bone twists or rotates real easy or slides right out, then you've reached that full cook time. It is, it is done. So when you're sipping on all those beers and, and, and bourbon and you can't find your thermometer, you grab that bone and pull it. When things have gone wrong, I mean, I, I think I read sometimes you actually burn down the whole thing, right? I mean, the, oh, this man. wasn't just a, yes, a pig more than lighting once. up. So, so if you're cooking a whole hog, one of the things that you need to do very first and foremost is be careful. You know, you're having fun as well sometimes and you need to be careful because if the hog flares up, the grease... That's when right. the fat drips into the fire. Right. And if anything is close by that's combustible, it can catch, be it a wall or uh, uh, the wood pile itself or anything flammable. And it can lead to the building if you're inside one or it can lead to the building if you're next to one. And before you know it, man, you, have, you got a major fire and it's gone. And trust me, from experience, it doesn't take long when a pig catches fire. So how did you learn to do this? I, I gather you're your dad on more than one occasion said, oh, by the way, you'll be cooking the hog for the next 12 hours. How did that work out? 
Oh, man. So my dad did teach me. Uh, he pretty much would tell us what we had to do. And one of one of the things was cooking hogs. And um, he would just basically tell you, you need to cook a hog tonight. It wasn't if you're busy or you're tired or whatever. Right. You need to cook a hog tonight. And and that's what we did. You had to go get make sure you had your wood set up, your barrel, and you grab this hog, you load it, and you start cooking. You also spent some time farming, and I love this quote. I mean, you you basically said you hate farming, like oh, anything, God, like like cooking pigs is like a, a picnic compared to farming. So, what kind of farming did you do, and why did you end up hating it? Well, the kind of farming my dad did, we planted cucumbers, which you had to bend over to pick. We did sweet potatoes, which you had to dig in the dirt to get out. Right. Um, we did tobacco, corn, soybeans, you you name it. My dad probably planted it. And you were always in these hot fields in the middle of the summer doing this work. And as a kid, you want to go drink Kool-Aid and play in the shade, you know. Right. But I said to myself one day when we were riding down the field on the tractor, I said, I got to get away from this. I can't do this all my life. I hate farming. I'm not a professional barbecuer like you, but I want to barbecue at home. I'm, you know, except for once a year, I'm not doing a whole hog. Um, do you have some tips for people about doing this at home? I mean, using your grill for barbecue or using a green egg or whatever you have? A lot of tips for people who are cooking at home. If you're using the grill, you want to be, again, careful and not have it too close to the house. You want to pay attention to make sure that everything is handled correctly because it's so easy to make mistakes when you're entertaining people. You always want to be sure and everything is safe, the right temperature, food is not laid out in the sun. Um, most importantly, you want to have fun. You want to enjoy it. Have a thermometer if you're not sure. Check your temperatures. Don't be afraid to Google it to make sure your food is done. Uh, have fun. Turn the music up. Also invite the neighbors just in case because... I don't think they're too happy when you throw big parties and, and they are, they're not invited. That's the best <laughs> advice, right? E- even if you don't like them, invite them over. Even right? if you don't like them, trust me, please invite them or send a plate. How do you um, deal with constant temperature? I mean, first of all, what temperature are you looking for for barbecue? And how do you, what's the best way? Let's assume you have a Weber grill, for example. What's the best way to maintain that temperature? Um, the best way to maintain the temperature on a Weber grill, uh, you want to pay attention. You may have to gap it every now and again to open the top. There's a little opening at the top that kind of cools it off and, and turns it up. And, and you just kind of want to check the temperature. And when you close it down, pay attention to the smoke and try to keep that smoke stream going. And that tend to help you recognize the temperature on a grill with no gauge. So this is uh, all the coals are on one side, the meats on the other side. Are these briquettes? What, what are you using for cooking? Uh, if you're in a Weber and you're in you're in an urban area, you probably want to be using some hardwood lump. Uh, I prefer hardwood lump. For me, it gives a better flavor. And uh, you definitely want to not put it all over. One side is definitely important because if the food gets too hot, you can move it over. As opposed to if you have the entire grill filled up with hot coals. There's nowhere the mo- there's nowhere you can put the food. Right. Another question I have is about mopping sauces. You know, the idea of of co- coating, let's say, pigs as they cook, hogs as they cook with a sauce. Do you think that that does that cool them down? Does that really add flavor? Why why do you do that during the cooking process, or maybe you don't? Well, we we mop during the cooking process, but before we mop, we bring the temperature up. 
so that when the sauce, the mop sauce does go on, it doesn't cool it down to a point where it stops cooking. And then once we get the mop sauce on it, we add more heat and let it sit for another 35, 40 minutes so that the sauce can cook through. Barbecue for you is a lot more than the food, right? Man, barbecue for me is way more than food. It's it's you get to meet new people. You get to hear their stories of where they're from and how they did barbecue. You exchange numbers and emails. And before you know it, there's a new relationship. Um, I mean, barbecue is a universal language. Food is. Rodney, it's been uh, just a, a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for having me. That was Rodney Scott. His book is Rodney Scott's World of Barbecue. Every day is a good day. Right now, my co-host Sarah Malt and I will be answering your cooking questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101. She also stars in Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. So, Chris, do you have a memorable meal that you had in another country when you were traveling at any point in your life that just really stands out? And I don't just mean because the food was good, but the whole moment. Not because it cost too much money and it was overpriced. Right. I've had a few right. of those. Right. Uh, no, I had back in the early 80s, I, I went to Freddy Giardet's in Crissier, Switzerland. Oh, yeah. Outside of Lausanne. I was actually cross-country skiing in Switzerland for a week. Woo-hoo. And I, I took a day off and we went there. And I interviewed him. And the thing that was so interesting was a very small restaurant, maybe seated 30 people. I think his father had a different kind of eatery there before he did. And he did the shopping at like five in the morning, right? And it was the most amazing food I ever had in my life. It was spectacular. Everything was absolutely perfect. The pastry was paper thin. He did a uh, foie gras, you know, sauteed. It was crispy on the outside with vinegar. The truffles were huge and absolutely phenomenal. And he was the most down-to-earth, nicest guy. You know, a combination of brilliance, great craftsmanship, and humility, right? Nice. And that, and that, for me, is the ultimate thing in a restaurant, is those three things together. Anyways, I still remember it today. Wow. I wish I'd gone there, but nice. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I wish I could share the meal, but I can only share the memory. So, anyway. <laughs> Okay. Anyway, let's take a call. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Emily. Hi, Emily. Where are you calling from? Arizona. How can we help you? So I've been making a lot of scones recently, and I've seen all different kinds of recipes, and I was wondering how can I get the best texture? Well, I think we need to take the rest of the show to discuss this because this is one of my favorite topics, and it's the most complicated thing in the world. Let's start with your definition of best. What's the best scone? Yeah, we really need to know what you're looking for when you say best. You want flaky layers. You want a cake-like texture. You want it crispy and crumbly on the outside. Uh, yeah, I want it crispy and crumbly on the outside, and inside I'm kind of open. Let's start with the big thing, the ratio of fat to flour. The leaner the scone, the more pebbly and crusty and crumbly it's going to be. The more fat you have, the softer and more pillowy it's going to be. Do you remember the recipe you were using, or do you have a recipe in mind? It uses two cups of cake flour, and then it's got six tablespoons of butter and seven tablespoons half and half. Yeah, that's about right. You can use buttermilk, you can use milk, you can use cream, you can use half and half, it's fine. You just use enough liquid to pull the dough together once you cut the fat, the butter into the flour with the salt and the baking powder. So if you want a crumblier 
texture, you might use less fat. Use five mm-hmm. tablespoons instead of six. If you okay. want a softer scone, it's more like a biscuit, you'd up that butter to seven or eight tablespoons to get a slightly fattier texture. Okay. The other thing you could try is if you really wanted a more crumbly scone, if you cut the cold butter in a food presser into the flour, that'll give you a uh, more layered effect. As in pie pastry, if you use melted butter, you're going to get a shorter dough, which means more like a cookie. Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for more like a cookie-like scone, it's not as layered. It's crumblier on the outside. You could try melting the butter and make a scone that way. Okay. Sarah? Oddly enough, I agree with Chris. (laughs) But if you could find a recipe that had you weigh the flour rather than measure the flour, that would be Mm -hmm. much better because that's far more precise. So if you have made this several times and it comes out differently every time, it's probably because you're actually measuring the flour differently. There's one thing we haven't talked about, which is the flour. You said the recipe called for cake flour. Mm -hmm. I'd go to all-purpose flour. Because okay. cake flour is going to, by definition, give you a more cake-like, softer yeah, texture. Yeah, more tender. I would try all-purpose, and that'll give you, you know, a sturdier scone. A rough-and-tumble scone. Okay. Thanks for answering my questions. Thanks for calling. All right. Thanks, Emily. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Mike from Phoenix. Hi, Mike from Phoenix. How can we help you today? I had a question about how our mouths perceive flavor. A couple months ago, I started experimenting with flavors, and there's this one chocolate my wife really likes that has chili in it. So I took some chocolate chip cookies and put some chili powder, and it tasted okay, but I felt like I tasted the sweet first and then the spicy later. Do we taste, you know, sweet, savory, salty, spicy in any certain order, or is it all at the same time? Wow, that is a very good question. I mean, remember those old um, diagrams of the tongue and they said, oh, you would taste bitter here and salty there. Well, actually, there's all sorts of little bumps all over your tongue that taste those flavors, sweet, salty, bitter, and umami. There's certain things that we need historically, I mean, you know, from caveman times, like sugar, lots of sugar. So it's interesting. Mm-hmm. It doesn't strike us as squarely as, say, something like salt or bitter. Probably because salt or bitter might mean that something was dangerous for us to eat way back. One of the great things about all these tastes is if you have the right amount of sugar to the right amount of chili, you should actually taste both. Sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami, yes, those are the little papillae in the tongue, and they each contain a bunch of cells, and different cells taste different things. If you ask about flavor, that comes up through the nasal passage into the brain. So virtually all of flavors, like strawberry, for example, is not a function of the tongue and the palate. It's the vaporized food being analyzed through the nasal passages up into the brain. Also, chili heat stimulates the nerves in a very different way than sour or bitter does. But 99% of what you perceive as flavor is not what's on your tongue. It's what's going up through the nasal passage, and that's how the brain – the brain has to recognize all that stuff, and that's based upon history and experience. So that, that's where most of that occurs. Well, in the case, Chris, of these cookies, what would you advise him to balance it better? Well, as I said, the chili, that's a different sensation. So just use more or less chili powder or use a different kind of chili. 
like an ancho chili or something that has a, maybe a fruitier flavor to go with a chocolate chip cookie. That's what I would look for, not something that's mostly just heat. That is incredibly helpful. And actually, I don't think I'd thought much about the difference between the taste, I guess, that's perceived by the tongue versus what goes up into the nasal cavity. That's just opened up a whole nother world of possibilities. Thank you so much. I'll go back to the recipe and work on the balance. Okay, Mike. Thanks, Mike. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you need help in the kitchen, give us a call anytime. Our number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Deidre. Hi, Deidre. Where are you calling from? I am calling from Grayson, Kentucky. How can we help you today? So first, thank you for taking my call. I'm super excited because I have a serious problem with the chocolate hazelnut cream cake. Oh, that dear. Was featured in the November, December magazine. Okay. I have gained 20 pounds in two months because of this cake. <laughs> what? <laughs> no. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's a testament to the recipe, I oh guess. Oh, my but, God, what, what an advertisement. Yes. <laughs> it is fabulous. I can't stop eating it. I have made it at least 12 times. But the sad wow. part is I know if I eat it all, I'm going to gain like 40 pounds. So I cut half of it and give it to my 70-year-old neighbor, who is now complaining that she is gaining weight. Oh, dear. What I'd like to know is, can I make the cake and make um, like snacking sizes and freeze it. So this cake, tell me, what are the parts? There's a whipped ganache portion. Mm -hmm. After you make it, you split it and you add your Nutella into it. Then there's the cake and there's the soaking syrup. Okay. And you bake your cake and put it all together and ta-da. I think the easiest solution for the cake half of it is to just make cupcakes. You could even make mini cupcakes and then freeze them. And then when it came time to, you know, have another batch, you could make the ganache and, you know, whip it. Now, I need to know a little more about the ganache. It's cream and chocolate, basically. It calls for white chocolate, finely chopped, and gelatin, heavy cream, mascarpone cheese, and honey. Oh, geez. Okay, because I don't think that would freeze very well. Yeah, didn't either. And I wonder if it's possible to make a half a batch of it. Do you think it would divide? Well, what you might try is you could bake the cake separately or, or do it as muffins or cupcakes. You might make the hazelnut filling, the ganache, and try freezing part of it, right? Just give that a okay. shot. And then when it comes out, you know, the next day, let it thaw room temperature and then try whipping it up and see if it whips up. After freezing, it might not, but at least you get the answer to that. The other possibility is you make the ganache and let it sit in the fridge, and that'll be good for three or four days. Well, the problem is now I'm going to go have to make the cake this weekend, so thanks. Yeah, yeah, you need to make it recently. Yeah, I, 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 you know, <laughs> like, like 10 times in a month, right? Oh, dear. dear. All right. <laughs> I'm not sure. Well, but... I'm glad you like it. Yep. <laughs> Oh, and, I love uh, it. Thank you. We love right. your enthusiasm. Yeah. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Take care. Okay. Stay safe. Bye-bye. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Up next, I'm getting philosophical with Nigella Lawson. That and lots more after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. (laughs) Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook. I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are and I think that makes it very food friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it you're reminded like oh wow Yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with food writer and TV host Nigella Lawson about her latest cookbook, Cook, Eat, Repeat. Nigella, welcome back to Milk Street. It's so, so lovely to be back, Chris. First of all, let me say uh, that you put the book back in cookbook. Oh, uh, thank you. Well, you know, I, reading your book, I, I just realized how much I miss people who can write. And in cookbooks, you know, the Jane Grigsons, the MFK Fishers, et cetera, they used to actually write books, cookbooks. It wasn't just a bunch of recipes. They, they thought about it and they had a point of view. Um, you talk about Aldous Huxley, who described in one of his books a young man's first taste of champagne. And he says, an apple peeled with a steel knife. And you write, uh, which I love, it lets you feel that sharp effervescence, taste that sherbety tang, and conveys the wincing abruptness of that first unexpected sip. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, I, I, I was writing that in the context of how you write a recipe that's helpful and often metaphor can give readers a clearer idea of the properties of a dish rather than just describing it. I think you need to do both, but I think it's very important that the reader can gauge as much as possible before they have cooked the recipe what taste it will end up having and what kind of a dish it will be. Now, of course, Aldous Huxley's description is, as a winemaker would tell you, not actually correct, and yet it tells you much more than if a sommelier were to explain what it really tasted of or what the grapes were. And I, and I think sometimes, and I feel this very importantly from my point of view, is that food occupies a physical and practical domain but it also lives in the world of the imagination. And in a way, I think that's a very important part of it when you're writing about food. You're conveying something from one world to another, from the practical to the imaginative, and from one person's mind and sensibilities to another's. It, it makes me think, uh, or reminds me, I should say, that recipes don't exist in a vacuum. Right. It, it's about context and point of view and personal experience. And I think your book does exactly that. I mean, I love the recipes, but the recipes are put in a context which makes them wholly more interesting and brings them to life rather than just being food in a pan. Well, well thank you. I mean, that is what I want to do. And I get a lot of pleasure uh, from doing that. But I also think in a way that a cookbook has to have a dual life because it has to be utterly reliable as a manual. The steps have to be right. The oven temperatures have to be right. You need to have tested things over and over again. And then it has another role, which is talking about the context, the beauty, why you're drawn to particular ingredients and context can be many things, culture, personal, 
historical. And I think that is why those of us who are fascinated with food continue to be so fascinated because it seems to me to occupy every realm of study. It's social history, it's anthropology, it's aesthetics. Uh, you've often said you enjoy eating in bed, something that I find anathema for some strange reason. I'm, some... Yeah, but I think I'm probably much more slobby than you. <laughs> but it's, it's almost, I, I find it hard to, um, to match what I know about you with eating in bed. Well, I don't eat all my meals in bed, but for example, lying in bed with a huge slab of chocolate, ideal. Reading a book, eating chocolate, deciding, do I really crunch down with my teeth on this square, you know, like a dog? <laughs> or do I let it, this one I think I'm going to let melt very slowly, always hard, <laughs> but then more gratifying. So that for me is very pleasurable, but I wouldn't, you know, I don't come up with a tray and a knife and fork right. and a bowl, but occasionally I've done a noodle soup in bed, but not much. I mean, actually, funnily enough, I did that more under normal conditions because I suppose, you know, life's busy and hectic. And on days when I was in, I thought, oh, I'm just going to take this upstairs. But over the last year, I guarded very jealously the quiet ceremony of, of cooking my supper. And I did sit at the table. You know, it maybe it was more important then. Otherwise, you know, who knows what would have happened. I'd gone completely feral. I went partly feral, but... <laughs> you're, you're no longer a domestic goddess, you're a feral goddess. Oh, but you know, that was an ironic title. I've never been a domestic <laughs> goddess. I've always thought you have a very specific idea about how life should be lived. Uh, and I think that kind of goes through your book. And You don't come out and say it, but you're, you have very strong opinions about how to do it the right <laughs> way. Could, could you just share a little bit of that with us? Well, I don't know what you mean, really, because I think I do have strong opinions, but I know how I need to, to lead my life. I'm not convinced everyone else will need her. I mean, I don't know. I think in life, one sort of just, you kind of make it up as you go along, but you, perhaps, after a while, you see there are certain defining features or certain things you hold on to. Cooking, for me, is very important. Feeding myself, um, taking enormous pleasure in the beauty of produce and maybe maybe it's the, the sense of we get through life by taking pleasures where you can you, there's no point waiting for something great and monumental because right. that doesn't happen very often and things go wrong very often so if I can look at a bowl of lemons on my table and get pleasure from that, I regard that as enormously lucky. And it does change the emotional tenor of a day, just like eating does. You know, cream has been now relegated to the dessert table here in America. Yes. And uh, here, probably. You brought it back, you know, fennel gratin, for example. Those are dishes I used to make a oh, long time ago. So and, I, and I saw that picture and I go like, why, why am I not making this now? Yeah. So, in defense of cream and savory dishes? Well, yes. I mean, I, would, I wouldn't feel great if I did it every meal, but I, I'm absolutely in favor of it. You know, I've said this before. I feel that, you know, fatty is very important, and I regard it as moisturizing from within. So, I'm 
very happy to carry on. <laughs> and I think there is something with the fennel when I mix Gruyere, Dijon mustard, cream and dry white vermouth. I know I mispronounced vermouth, but I've done it for too long. I can't change now. <laughs> and um, it's such a wonderful combination. And I think that maybe there's something comforting about those old, you know, cream-bound dishes. I don't know that... I mean, there's not a huge amount of cream in it, actually, if you think about how many people might eat it. But it certainly plays a very important part. I think I've spent most of COVID telling people to brown their butter for some reason. I don't know why. I guess I'm, I'm losing it. But you talk... No, <laughs> it's very wise. Well, you, you lead the march here about browning yeah. butter. Well, it's... I think... Because to some people think of it as a, like a complicated sauce, they don't realize you all brown butter means is you're browning the butter. And I wanted to talk about the various ways you can use brown butter. The French call it noisette, and noisette being hazelnut, and that's the color to go for. But it's actually got quite a nutty taste. Mm. And it's caramelly without being sweet exactly. It's like a savory hint of caramel. It's really extraordinary, and you know, just that on a bit of white fish is fabulous. I happen to like it with pork chops a lot too, and a bit of sage. The the great thing about cooking is you apply something you you've learned or you've grown to love to something else, and so so many of the head notes in the books are about suggesting connections. I call it my culinary stream of consciousness, but it's about this is brown butter, these are its properties, and these are other ways you could use it. So as much as possible, I, I suppose I want to show that every recipe has within it the seeds of so many other dishes. And I, I, and I think it's very important not to make it look as if a recipe has to be one way and no other, because that's antithetical to what I like to think of as the, the anarchy of cooking. You know, there's order to cooking, but there needs to be an element of anarchy. Most cookbooks, every recipe is just, uh, you know, a cog, right? It, it, it exists on its own. You tie all these recipes and cooking together in sort of this fluid prose where things go back and forth between recipes and between ideas. Yes. Well, I feel that one can overlay food with many things and it's not false to do that. But in a sense... How people write about food or how they think about food is really about how they keep alive, how they keep others alive, what reminds them of their families, what reminds them of a vacation they took somewhere. It's about their identity. And I was thinking about the recipe form generally, and I think what makes it interesting is that it's written for the present. Even if it draws on the past, it is for the present. You don't set out to write something for posterity, you're communicating to people who are alive now. And it's sort of irrelevant how it lasts afterwards, even though I'm sure, you know, some people worry about that, but it's so extraordinarily present. And for me, that translates to cooking as well, which is maybe, for me, one of the easiest ways just to be in the moment. I often think people who think food is somehow trivial, like fashion or, you know, what it's, oh, it's just food you need to keep alive. So dwelling on it is, is somehow a frivolity. I always feel 
There are so many people who would want to be sitting around a table eating the meal that their mother cooked them or food that they grew up with or food that they have been exiled from because of having to move country. It's not a small thing. So it is your responsibility, it is my responsibility and a very glad duty to be grateful for it and not to be flippant with it as if it's immaterial. It's not. It's the, it's the fabric of our, of our lives and of our relationships. Najala, it has been a great pleasure. Sorry I talk such a lot, but it's always <laughs> lovely chatting to you. <laughs> That's why you're such a great interview. <laughs> <laughs> I don't draw breath. It was really lovely, <laughs> and I hope you're all well. Take care. That was Nigella Lawson. Her book is Cook, Eat, Repeat, Ingredients, Recipes, and Stories. You know, writing about food is a lost art. Today, most cookbooks are nothing more than collections of recipes, biographical perhaps, but without the grace and inspiration of language to elevate. Recipes tell our stories only if we're able to communicate, that is to use language to make surprising connections. So a first sip of champagne can be described as bubbly, but here's what Nigella wrote. It lets you feel that sharp effervescent taste, that sherbety tang. It conveys the wincing abruptness of that first unexpected sip. So let's not forget that food writing should be first and foremost writing. This is Milk Street Radio. It's time to chat with J.M. Hirsch about this week's recipe, polenta with shrimp and tomatoes. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. You know, you spend a fair amount of time in Italy for obvious reasons. And what really shocks me is that you go there and come back with classic recipes everybody knows, but discover they're made totally differently in Italy. (laughs) I would think by now, right, with the history of food, especially in the last 50 years— All that would be kind of sussed out. You know, we'd know how to do it. One of the recipes that just shocked me more than any other was polenta because this whole thing about stirring and everything else. And actually, they don't make it that way at all. No, it's true. And, you know, what I've concluded is that we tend to overthink things (laughs) and we complicate things. And when you go to Italy and, and you start learning from home cooks, you realize that Actually, they do it much simpler and, frankly, much better. You know, we think of polenta as this kind of overwrought stirring and stirring and stirring, and then you lard it up with cheese and dairy, and and you end up with glue. And, you know, it was a few years ago, I was in a small mill, a grain mill outside of Genoa, and the cook there showed me that, no, you know, you throw some ground, finely ground cornmeal in a pot with some water, you give it a couple stirs at the beginning, and you let it go. And I thought, well, maybe this is a one-off. Maybe this woman has just, like, cracked the code of better polenta. But it's, you know, every time I've seen polenta anywhere in Italy, it's the same basic hands-off approach. And there's no cheese in it. You let the real clean, fresh flavor of the polenta, of the corn, shine through because it doesn't have to compete with cheese. And then it becomes this delicious, creamy base for whatever you want to pair it with. So today we're choosing shrimp to pair it with polenta, right? Yes, yes. So at a farm about 45 minutes north of Venice, a home cook named Michaela Tasca uh, taught me this recipe. 
where you combine shrimp and tomatoes to make this kind of sweet and savory sauce of tomatoes and garlic and red pepper flakes, a little bit of basil, and of course, tender plump shrimp. Now, what I really found fascinating is that we tend to think of shrimp as kind of a, a decadent food, you know, something you splurge on. But in Venice, it was always part of cucina povera, you know, poor food, you know, the poor kitchen. And so shrimp, this is just a very simple dish that just happens to pack a lot of fresh, bright flavor. And I assume it's honest to say that Italians will put almost anything on polenta. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I was recently in Venice and you go from bar to bar, which, of course, I like to do. And, you know, and one of the things they do is they serve you fried squares of polenta and it's these chiqueteria. They top them with all sorts of things like, you know, cheeses and cured meats and seafood and, you know, dried cod and just all these amazing toppings. They're happy to throw anything on polenta and I loved it. So Venetian polenta and shrimp, uh, you keep the polenta simple, but just have fun with the topping, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's just some tomatoes cooked down with some olive oil and some garlic, and then you throw the shrimp in, and they cook really gently in the residual heat of the sauce. Then you throw that on top of the polenta, and it is amazing. Jam, thanks. That's Venetian polenta and shrimp, the perfect marriage. Thank you. Thank you. You can get this recipe for Venetian polenta and shrimp at MilkStreetRadio.com. This is Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman orders takeout from across the country. We'll be right back. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. 
They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available, ready to eat, with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices, as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be answering a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Charlotte Sasso from Amagansett, New York. How can we help you today? I was looking through some, you know, food porn, and I found <laughs> a really fun recipe for a deconstructed, modern sort of eggplant parmesan. So they were upgrading all the ingredients. And panko was the breading of choice for this recipe. And I started to think, is there an upgrade for panko? I'm always making my own breadcrumbs. I never waste any sort of bread or cracker. I always find a use for it. So I was just thinking of it as an intellectual exercise. You know, how is panko made? Is there a substitute for it? Is there a homemade version? And I thought it was an interesting question. It is a very interesting question. The way panko is made is by making a very simple dough and then baking it using an electric current instead of heat. So it comes out sort of crustless with a lot of holes in it. And yes, it, yes. I mean, I, I think of panko as snowflakes. Yes, you know, exactly. Like more of a crystal than a crumb. Exactly. And, you know, there's this book that came out, I don't know, about 10 years ago, which talked about when you should make something and when you should buy something. It's called Make the Bread, Buy the Butter. I think this is one of those times where you just buy the panko. I really don't think you can come up with something as crisp or as equivalent noodling around yourself. Let's see what Chris has to say about this. (laughs) Buy the panko, yeah. (laughs) Well, no, but she started by saying she doesn't like to waste anything. So if you did have a very light white bread... This is the classic Japanese-style white bread. Take the crust off, grate the bread, and bake it in a moderate oven for 10 minutes, you know, 300 degrees, something like that, stirring occasionally. And you probably get something that's pretty good. But the reason you do that is you don't want to throw the bread away. Correct. That sounds great. I mean, in the past, when I've, you know, jazzed up my eggplant parmesan, I've played around with crostini-type mm-hmm. crackers, 
or garlic bread, you know, something to boost that flavor. So it's something that I love playing around with. You know what? In my last cookbook, I have Inside Out Eggplant Parmigiano. Mm-hmm. I um, sliced the eggplant and I actually brushed it with oil and baked it till it got soft. Seasoned it too, of course. And then the filling, I make some croutons, uh, basically, you know, little cubes and saute them in olive oil, add maybe a little garlic, salt and pepper. And then that is the filling. And then I rolled the croutons inside of the eggplant slices with some Parmesan and some mozzarella and then topped it off with some marinara sauce. It sounds terrific, and it sounds as if it looks really pretty as well. It does. I definitely will check it out. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed the show. It's a great pleasure to speak with both of you. Thanks for calling. Appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. Take care. This is Mill Street Radio. If you're looking for a bit of culinary inspiration, give us a call anytime. Our number, once again, is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Robin from Farrington Village in North Carolina. So how can we help you? Well, I'm having problems with cannolis. Okay. I'm finding that I can't get those ubiquitous bubbles that everyone else seems to be able to achieve. <laughs> oh, boy. I've tried different things. I'm uh, frying them at 360 degrees. I've used both a regular instant read thermometer, and I also have an old deep fryer that I got out right. of the, the back of a closet to make sure I had the right temperature, did that. I'll get just a few bubbles, but that's it. I've tried numerous recipes. I even tried seltzer water once. I tried that in waffles once, I remember. Well, I had one giant bubble. Well, maybe that's a new thing. Maybe you should start a bakery. <laughs> I would go to Stella Park's book. She's a fabulous baker and does fabulous desserts. I think she has a recipe for this. I've never made cannoli, I have to be honest, but the two things I would think are important the liquid content of the dough, because mm-hmm. a wetter dough is going to probably have more steam in it when it hits the oil, right? And probably right. cause more bubbling. There's another thing I know she does in her recipe, which is she rolls it out thin and then she folds it. You know, I think she probably brushes it with okay. water or egg white or something and folds it over. So you get layering, like in a lot of French pastries, there's layering going on. Right, right, like a lamination. Exactly. That would be another mm-hmm. way of probably getting more bubbling. But the simplest way would just be to add a little more liquid to the dough and make sure it's fully hydrated before you roll it out. Sarah, I mean, that's all I can add to this. I agree with Chris, and also I'm a big fan of Stella's. Okay, thank you very much. I will try the water. Thanks. Okay, Take thank care. you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for this week's cooking tip from one of our listeners. Hi, my name is Precious Nielsen, and here's my tip. I always use Worcestershire sauce on hamburgers when I'm making the burgers and on salmon. And you should try it. You'll like it on both of them. Thank you. Bye. If you'd like to share your own culinary hack or secret ingredient on Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radiotips.
Next up, it's Dan Pashman. Dan, what's going on? Well, Chris, I am waiting for a package. <laughs> is, it, is this like waiting for Godot? Or is it ever <laughs> going to show up? I hope so. I hope so. I... I hit a point during COVID, during the, the worst periods where I got very sick of my own cooking. I think a lot of folks experienced this. I wanted to taste something new. I couldn't go out. Yes, I ordered takeout from my local restaurants and wanted to support them, but then I even got a little tired of those. And I started ordering food, mail order, from different restaurants all over the country. And hmm. it is wonderful. And I'll tell you why it's wonderful. You know, Chris, like you go out to a restaurant, you're hungry, you order something delicious, and there's an anticipation that comes as you wait for the food to arrive. And that is part of the joy of eating, I think. When you ship food to yourself, you get that times 100 because you can set it to arrive on a certain date. You, you, you get the notification when it ships out. You know when it's coming sometime that day, but you don't know exactly when. I ordered this coconut cake from a bakery in Los Angeles, and could not wait. I, I I knew the day it was coming. I kept like every hour opening my front door, looking on the front steps. Is the box here yet? Is the box here yet? It was so much fun and exciting. And then when the box finally arrives, there's so much joy. I got ribs from Kansas City. I got dumplings. I got muffaletta sandwich from New Orleans. Uh, I got a lemon cake from South Carolina. No, wait, 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 wait. You you got a fully made muffaletta sandwich? Or they give you all the components separately and you It was put it fully together? made, and I tell you what, it really? held together just fine. I mean, it was the size of a hubcap. Yeah, I, I've had them in, in New Orleans. <laughs> but I, I was just thinking with all the dressing and everything, it doesn't soak into the bread. And... I, I was afraid of that, but it held together very well. I, I hmm. did sort of... um disassemble it and and I, I I put the bread in the toaster oven oh, I see. And, and then I the, the meat I warmed very slightly in the microwave just to like take the chill off and then put it back together and it held together very well and it had it had the crunch of those mm. the, and, and the spiciness and the acidity of the vegetables and the cheese and the meat it was so good so if I may ask how yeah. did you suss out find all these places to buy? Uh, the things you wanted. Well, you know, you can look online, read reviews, read recommendations. There is a website called Gold Belly that does a lot of these deliveries that I've used. Some restaurants will ship directly to you. I will say that that it's not cheap. Some of the prices were just prohibitively expensive. Um, certain th places, for whatever reason, are just astronomical. So I, I, I wasn't willing to spend that much money. But certain types of food, I think, are more reasonable. Barbecue, I think, is one of the best deals. Yeah. You could get dinner for four, barbecue, for not much more than what it would cost you to go to a great barbecue restaurant. It's going to get shipped to you from Texas or Kansas City or wherever. Desserts also, more expensive than a local bakery, but not so much more. And you can get all these kinds of specialty desserts, regional specialties that you wouldn't get elsewhere. So it's, it's, it's fun to look forward to eating it. It's fun to get this treat in the mail. It changes up what you're eating. It's a, it, it, it makes the meal an event. And to me, that's part of what I love about eating. Well, I love the fact you're supporting, you know, these bakeries and restaurants that went went through just a horrendous year, right. which I think is great. But let's take barbecue. It it is something about walking into a barbecue joint that is almost as important as the meat. I mean, there it's just that experience, right? I mean, yeah, it's great to have the food, but then you're sitting in your, in your kitchen around the table. You're, you're not at some really cool place in Texas or North Carolina or Kansas yeah. City. So. Yeah, but it's still not quite the same. 
That's true. I'm, I'm not going to say that it's the same as going to a place, um, but it's a way to have new food experiences without leaving your house. Well, I, th- I think what this is part of is a bigger story, which is the reimagining of food service in the hospitality industry, right? I mean, it's not going to be the way it was. I think that makes sense. I, I, but I think you're right also that, that, that there's going to be opportunities for smaller local places to use technology to grow their businesses, hopefully, you know, in a, in a way that will make them sustainable and um, allow them to sell well beyond their communities. Yeah, I think that's great. I, th- I think it's like the, the story of small farmers in the last 20 years. I think there's, there's a little bit of hope that the small restaurateur bakery uh, now has a wider audience, right, and, and can actually make a decent living doing that, which would be fabulous because what we need more of is the small places, right? I mean, that, that's, that's where the food is really unexpected. And it's nice to support a, you know, a small business. 100%. And as long as those small businesses are shipping food, I will be here to eat it. So one question. So you got an entire coconut cake. What did you do with it all? Um, I ate it over a period of several days. <laughs> I mean, if you get a whole cake, that's that's a pretty serious commitment. Yes, it is. But the great thing about cake also is, you know, like you can freeze it. It lasts. True. So you, you space it out, you know, treat yourself. Or in 25 years, you can claim it was your wedding cake. <laughs> you won't remember anyway. That's right. <laughs> so, Dan, you're now Mr. Mail Order. Coconut cake, barbecue, muffaletta sandwiches. Good for you. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Take care. That was Dan Pashman, host of the Sporkful Food Podcast. That's it for this week's show. If you tune in too late or want to binge listen every single episode, you can download Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find all of our recipes, you can take a free online cooking class, or you can order our latest cookbook, which is Tuesday Night's Mediterranean. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street and on Instagram and Twitter at 177milkstreet. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks as always for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with GBH, executive producer Melissa Baldino. Senior Audio Editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Sarah Clapp and Jason Tureski. Production Assistant, Amelia McGuire. Intern, Emily Kunkel. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Additional editing by Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tubab Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. PRX.